Well, thank you very much for coming tonight. Some of you have been here all day and you have stayed tonight. Thank you for that. It shows certainly your love for the gospel. This is a gospel meeting. If you've never been in a meeting like this before, for the next few minutes, we're going to consider how it is possible for a person to be saved and sure that when life is done, they will be in heaven. We consider that the most important issue of all. And so we're thankful you could be here with us for these few minutes. Now, there are directions at the back. If any of you are going to the hymn sing after the meeting tonight and you're not sure of the way, Brother Azudema has helpfully printed up directions that will show you how to get there. So again, thank you for coming. We're going to ask God's blessing on this meeting, shall we pray? Our Father, we bow in thy presence in the name of thy beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We are so thankful that this time has been set aside for the preaching of the gospel of the grace of God. We look back to moments when in meetings like this, times like this, our hearts were addressed. We were spoken to by the power of the word of God, and we were compelled to face eternal realities as we listened to truth being set before us. We pray that tonight the attention of everyone here will be drawn to the Lord Jesus, to the Savior of guilty sinners, to the one who came into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. And we thank Thee, Father, that we have a message to tell of a Savior who died for our sins, was buried, and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Bless this message. And as it is being preached in other places as well tonight, we ask for Thy rich blessing, giving thanks in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I'd like to read with you just one passage. It is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're going to read at verse 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 17. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. I read recently that the English word crux, as in the crux of the matter or the the crux of the situation, comes from medieval Latin and simply means the cross, that its significance is based on the fact that the cross of Christ is the, the crux of history and of eternity. Well, wanting to be sure, I didn't want to say something that I wasn't absolutely certain of, I searched for the etymology of the word and sure enough, that's the case. And as I was looking at that, I just happened to notice on the next line the definition given of crux. And these were the words. A basic, vital, decisive, or pivotal matter. And I thought to myself, what a description of the cross of Christ. Basic, vital, decisive, and pivotal. I'd like you to think about that cross with me for a few minutes tonight, because it is basic to Christianity and to the gospel. 
If you hear somebody preaching the gospel and they don't tell you about the death and resurrection of Christ, if they don't tell you how that Christ died on a cross so that our sins could be forgiven, then whatever else you're hearing, you're not hearing the gospel. Because the cross of Christ is basic. It's not a part of the Christian religion. The Christian religion cannot stand if this is removed from it. This is basic. This is foundational. Apart from this, there is no gospel, there is no good news, and there's no hope for any of us. But, thank God, Paul says that the preaching of the cross, the preaching of the cross is to us who are saved the power of God. He would describe in Romans chapter 1 that the gospel of Christ is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believes. And while that message was preached in the first century, 2,000 years later, this is still the heart and soul of God's good news to you. It is basic to the gospel of Christ. One great preacher of the past day, he said, I, I, I choose my text, I pick the verse I'm going to preach, and then I make a beeline to the cross. That is, he wanted to get his audience quickly to be thinking about that cross, what happened at that cross, why it was necessary, because it is basic to Christianity. How blessed it is to those who, know, who are saved, to those who understand what happened at that cross. As Paul said to us, it is the, the power of God. In other parts of the New Testament, you'll read about people who boasted in their personal goodness, in their church, in their religion, in their good works. People who boasted in their human ability or even in their attainment or appearance, what other people thought of them. But Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, the thing I boast in, the thing I brag in, is that Christ went to the cross for me. That's, what, that's where I make my boast, that Christ loved me so much that he died for me. Tragically, that cross, the message of salvation through that cross, is often belittled and even overlooked by those who were lost. Perhaps you have never grasped. I wouldn't want to accuse you of this. I would like to ask you. I'd like to challenge your thinking. Perhaps you have never thought, what is the, the significance, what is the true value of what happened on that cross? Because to some, it seems like a, a defeat, a display of weakness. In fact, there are literally millions of people in the world who subscribe to a religion that teaches that the Lord Jesus could never have died on the cross because that would be a defeat. And God can't be defeated. But actually, you must understand, the cross was a victory. It was by, by dying that the Lord Jesus, as we'll note in a minute, that the Lord Jesus brought a deliverance from death itself for those who trust him. So, tragically, tragically, there are many people who overlook it. One Oxford professor, whose name I will not mention, he said some time ago that the idea that Jesus died on the cross for our sins is intellectually contemptible and morally outrageous. Got that? That Christ would die on a cross for our sins? He said that is intellectually contemptible and is morally outrageous. Because Paul said the preaching of the cross is to those who perish. Foolish. I'll never forget this. I was on a, a U.S. air flight coming home from Toronto after gospel meetings 35 years ago, I think it was. And uh, before I had left, I had just uh, gone through a, a, a case I had of tracts and, and, and uh, small booklets and grabbed just a booklet that was one book of the Bible for the plane. Just one book. This is long before there were uh, books on your smartphones or on your iPads. So I just wanted to have something that could fit in my pocket that I could read. And it happened to be 1 Corinthians. Just a small little bound booklet of 1 Corinthians. So I grabbed it, put it in my pocket, got on the plane, flew to Toronto. On the way home, it was in my pocket or bag that I had at my seat. And the lady I was sitting next to got into a conversation with me. And she said she was from a place called... Thessaloniki, as she pronounced it, Thessaloniki, in Greece. And we began to talk about the Bible. 
and what had happened in the, the part of the world that she came from. And then I mentioned about salvation through the death of Christ on the cross. And I couldn't believe what she said. And I was so glad I had First Corinthians in my pocket. She said, I need to explain to you the Greek mind. She said, to the Greek mind, the idea of being saved through somebody's death on a cross, she said, that, that is unacceptable to our mind. Now, you will think I am exaggerating that when I pulled out that booklet of 1 Corinthians and let her read the words you're reading to the Greeks, it's foolishness. Her eyes got as big as saucers. She couldn't believe that that was in the Bible, talking about her. But see, it's not just talking about her. It's talking about those who have never come to understand that salvation from sin and death and hell, that a ticket to heaven, a passport to the presence of God, is through that cross. The cross of Christ is basic to Christianity. The cross of Christ is vital. How vital is it? No one can enter heaven unless his sins are paid for. No one can enter heaven unless his sins are paid for. That is what the Bible simply teaches. Now, we tend to minimize sins. As long as we can find one other human being who has committed sins that we think are worse than ours, as long as we could put our hand on one other breathing, sentient being that we think is worse than we, we imagine that somehow that means God will punish him but not me. That my sins are not as bad as his, so therefore I stand a better chance of getting to heaven. You must understand that no one can enter heaven unless his sins are paid for. Sin invaded God's good creation in Genesis chapter 3, destroying the paradise that God had made for us. Please don't think lightly of sin when you think about a force, a power, a thing that could take a good creation and turn it into what the Bible describes now as a creation that is groaning in travail with tears and death and sorrow and sickness and pain. It is sin that caused that. Sin interrupted God's lofty plans for you and me. God intended, as we were reminded today, that human beings would rule this planet for him. That we would represent him. That you would be able to look at the, the moral character of human beings and say, Oh, I understand something about God's righteousness, God's holiness, God's mercy, God's love, God's grace. But of course, sin came in and interrupted those plans. And, and robbed us of the ability to serve and to, to glorify our Creator. Sin infected our nature with its terrible plague and left no part of us untouched by its awful power and, 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 and blighting force. I just uh, ran through a book by Owen Beattie and John Geiger called Buried in Ice. And uh, I, I had often read just snippets here and there and different things about the ill-fated Sir John Franklin expedition back in the 1800s to find a, a Northwest Passage. But um, one of these men, Owen Beatty, was an anthropologist. And because of the frigid conditions in that part of the world where, where those people disappeared, and then some remains were found, and then some bodies, those bodies were well preserved. And as an anthropologist, Mr. Beatty, along with his staff, they were able to take samples, bone samples and hair samples, and then reinter the bodies into the frozen tundra. You know what they found? And then in the time period of the 1900s and before, early 1900s, 
Tins were sealed with solder that was on the inside of the tins. And the Sir John Franklin expedition took 8,000 tins of food. And what they found was excessive lead poisoning, acute lead poisoning in those people, which suddenly made everything make sense. Eskimos talked about seeing people crazily walking in the snow and talking about where they were going and, 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 and thought these foolish white men, what are they doing? And He described that lead poisoning of that nature results in a loss of appetite, weakness, an inability to fight off other diseases, mental confusion. So you understand that they carried with them and had in them the very thing that killed them? It was in them. They weren't aware of it. But that's what killed them. I was unaware of my sins. I just was a young man growing up in a home where the Bible was read, where God was feared, where his word was taught to me. And I thought there were a lot of people worse than I was. And I never realized that I was carrying inside me the very thing that was going to destroy my life, my soul, my eternity. Sin infected the human nature when it came into our world and it incited rebellion in our hearts against God, destroying the relationship that God intended to have with us. You must understand, no human being can go into heaven unless his sins are put away, unless his sins are paid for. How vital is the cross of Christ? No one but Christ could pay for our sins. No one. Sinners could no more pay for their sins than a bankrupt man could pay his debts or a, a crippled man could walk for his health or a, a blind man could read how to regain his sight. We were equally disqualified from doing anything to save ourselves because we had no ability to pay for our sins. We don't have the currency that God would accept. The only thing that could pay for sin, that could, that could satisfy the, the demands of that righteous throne of God was that an innocent victim would willingly take our place. Uh, someone who had no sins of his own would be willing to die in the place of sinners who were guilty and lost and helpless. And in all of the universe, there's only one person who met that criteria of being infinitely worthy and perfectly and impeccably sinless. Just one person. It's amazing to me that God would be willing to... Send his son to die for you and me. And it is equally amazing that the Lord Jesus would be willing to sacrifice himself so that you and I could be saved. Because no one but Christ could pay for our sins. How vital is the cross of Christ? In no other way could Christ pay for our sins except by dying on the cross. The Bible says he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That he endured the cross, despising the shame. Peter says that he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Isaiah reminds us that when he was on that cross, that God in high heaven laid upon the Lord Jesus the iniquity of us all. That God punished Jesus for me. And that that is why I can tell you tonight that although I deserve to go to hell, I am going to heaven because Christ died for me. Christ died for my sins. Christ went to that cross for me. I was reading earlier this week the words of those who gathered at the cross when they said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. And it clicked in my mind. When I'm in Livingston or here in Midland Park area, I cannot help but often think of what we just 
observe the, the 14th anniversary of that unforgettable day. Livingston, when it had, had its open-air meetings, it was in view of those twin towers just across in the distance from a park where they were preaching. Rick Rescorla was a, a native of Cornwall, England, who joined the British Army, came over to the United States, joined the U.S. Army, distinguished himself in Vietnam, won medals for his courage and leadership in Vietnam. Came back to the United States, retired into civilian life, and was hired by Morgan Stanley Dean Witter as their head of security, South Tower, World Trade Center. Rick Rescorla was a smart man. And he told the Port Authority, back in the early 1990s, this building could be brought down by a truck bomb in the basement near one of those load-bearing pillars. You need to do something about that. And they ignored him. Rick Rescorla said to the people he worked for, this is a prime terrorist target. We need to move the people out of here. And they told him, by, by, by now it was getting close to the end of the 1990s, and they said, well, our uh, lease runs till 2005. And we're not going to move now, but we'll consider it once the lease runs out. But it would be too costly to move now. So Rick did the only thing he could. And they grumbled at him. He took the employees through escape training, made them walk the steps, up and down those steps, where to go, put them through drills. And then the plane struck. North Tower first. Authority got on the intercom in the South Tower, said, everybody's safe, just stay here. If the problem's in the North Tower, just stay here. Rick Rescorla would have none of it. He said, we're leaving. Let's go. Everybody out. Got on the bullhorn. He said, be proud that you're an American. People will be talking about you tomorrow. And then he sang, God bless America, from Cornwall, England. He sang, God bless America. And then he sang some other Cornish songs to keep people's spirits up and got them walking down the stairs, got them out, got outside with them, and then went back in. Even after the plane struck, went back in. He was told that he should leave. He said, I'm not leaving until I'm sure all my employees are safe. Called his wife, said, I'm getting all our people out. And dear, you made my life. Clicked off. They said he was everywhere that day. If you put together all the places where they said he was, then he was from between the 10th and the 72nd floor getting his employees out of that building. And those were his last words to his wife. He saved that day almost 3,000 people who would undoubtedly have died if he hadn't moved them out of that building. He saved others, but he couldn't save himself. Do you know what, Calvary? They were half right. Blessedly right. He saved others. He saved guilty sinners, outcasts, proud people who, before they met him, were self-righteous and convinced their religion was good enough. And then they met Christ and they repented of their sins and trusted him. He saved others. He could have saved himself. But he couldn't save himself and save you. 
And he willingly gave himself. That cross was vital. And he would not, he would not stop until he could say, it is finished, and bow his head and dismiss his spirit. It's not only basic. It's not only vital. It's decisive. You know what happened there? Sin's debt was finally paid. If you read the Bible and start at Genesis and work your way through, you will be appalled. If you tried to keep account, I'm not sure that you could do it just in your head unless you're a brilliant mathematician. The sacrifices that were offered, the countless, the teeming sacrifices that were offered by people hoping to have their sins covered in some way, hoping to, to, to postpone judgment against their sins. And in our world today, the largest gathering of human beings on the planet takes place in India in a religious festival where there are millions of people, millions of people hoping somehow to, to, to obtain purification. But at that cross, on that April day, in that year 33, outside the walls of that city of Jerusalem, on that center cross, the creator of heaven and earth died for guilty sinners, gave his life, sacrificed himself, died for you, so that he could finally and eternally pay for sin. And the writer to the book of Hebrews puts it so memorably when he says, Priests stand daily offering sacrifices that can never take away sin. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. That he finished the work that can save your soul from eternal judgment. That he finished the work that can bring you to heaven. That sin and its debt was finally paid. That God's throne of justice was finally satisfied. All of our sins are first and foremost chiefly against God. And nobody could satisfy God's demands and claims except God himself. And that's exactly what Christ did at Calvary. For the first time, a sufficient payment has been made that enables God to forgive any sin and any sinner if that person repents of his sin and trusts Christ. No sacrifice, no sacrifice before Calvary had ever been able to do that. But how decisive this was. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he took my place on that cross. Just thinking of 9-11 again. I'm sure that many of you have seen or read or at least heard of the book written by Steve Scheibner when he wrote about somebody taking my place in my seat. That he was the pilot who was supposed to be piloting Flight 11. The first plane that would hit the North Tower. That he had actually signed his name in. And that the way the airlines work is... You subscribe, you, you, you pick a flight and say, you, this, is, this is the flight I want to take. He said to his wife, I'm heading to L.A. tomorrow. Packed his bags, threw it in the trunk of the car. Went out and mowed the lawn. There's a window. It's a period of time where if a pilot has seniority over you, he can bump you. And if that doesn't happen, then the airline calls you and says, you've got the flight. And at some point, Steve realized the airline never called. So he checked and found out that he wasn't going to be going. The next day, he didn't even realize. He, he knew about the planes. He knew about the, what had happened. But he, he didn't even realize that it was the plane he was supposed to be on. He said, I, I, I booted up the computer. I got online. He said, when the screen came up and I looked at it, it suddenly dawned on me. That was the flight I was supposed to be on. I was supposed to be flying that 
And then he saw the three words. Sequence, continuity, failed. Sequence, continuity, failed. That's airline language that the plane never got where it was supposed to get. And he found out that a pilot named Tom McGinnis, whose birthday had been 9-10, one day after his birthday, bumped him, took his place, was sitting up in the cockpit when those awful terrorists broke in with their box knives. This is what Steve Scheibner said. Somebody died in my seat. Somebody took my place and died for me. Not once, but twice. Tom McGinnis took my place on that plane. (coughs) Jesus Christ took my place on that cross. He took my sins and paid for them at Calvary. He took my place. Have you ever found that out? Is, it, is, is this all just sort of like religion and it's something perhaps you'll think about at Easter? Or do you understand that the great God of heaven so loved you that he gave his only begotten son so that you could believe on that son and have everlasting life and never perish? That cross is decisive. And as I close, I want to remind you that it is pivotal. It is pivotal. The hinge on which your destiny will swing to or away from heaven is determined right there at Calvary. That cross makes the difference between heaven and hell. And I think that is seen so clearly on that April day when Christ died. That you have a thief on one side, whichever side it was, one side. Never repenting, still joining with the crowd to mock the Savior. And a thief on the other side. Saying, Lord, remember me when thou comest in thy kingdom. One man dying, and as far as we know, losing his soul forever. One man on the very edge of eternity, on the very brink of eternal judgment. Turning to the Lord Jesus and finding a Savior ready to save him. Why did he do it? And why should you do it tonight? Well, he was conscious of God, wasn't he? What did, what, what did he say? He turns, he turns to the thief on the other side who is still with, with, with mockery, scorning the Savior. And he says to him, Don't you fear God? Don't you fear God? Do you see what happened? He stopped thinking about the crowd. And joining with the crowd in what was going on. And he started thinking about God. And that he would soon be meeting God. And he was conscious of God. And he says, we are getting exactly what we deserve. He was convicted of his guilt. Very rare. It is very rare to meet someone who's ready to admit that what God says is right. I'm a guilty sinner. That man was. And he was convinced of Christ's grace. I don't want to sound foolish. But when I get to heaven, if I have an opportunity to talk to this malefactor, I would like to ask him, was it, was it the grace that was shown when the Lord Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do? He, he, he himself felt such hate and anger toward his executioners. Was it, was it that that made him think that Jesus would save me? Was it, was it the grace shown when Christ took care of his mother? He himself could think of hardly anything else but the excruciating pain that was coursing, that was, that was, that was 
hammering through his brain and his body and every nerve. And yet, the Lord Jesus is taking care of his mother. Was it the, was it the grace shown when people mocked Christ and he never retaliated? When this man had not only joined in the mockery, but he must have been awed, stunned by the lack of venom coming from the Savior. And he says, remember me when thou comest in thy kingdom. Now, we have some people here from North Carolina. Uh, my family and I were down there for a family wedding not all that long ago. And somebody said, um, you, really, you really should go to this museum. It is the museum that houses right now, among other planes, the plane that landed in the Hudson. Captain Sullenberg landing it there. Remember when the... the Mayor, was it Mayor Dinkins said, we, we have a miracle. We have a miracle in the Hudson today. There were a lot of things there that really intrigued me, but I, I noticed the quote from a woman named Beverly Waters. She was sitting in seat 21E. She's one of the wing walkers, as they're called. Because when that plane finally settled into the Hudson, she's one of the ones that went out through the emergency door and she stood on the wing to see the picture of them all outlining on the wing. She was a wing walker. And they, they followed what was happening in that museum eventually, a couple of years later, when the museum got the, the plane. And on the museum's face page, Facebook page, there was a picture of the U.S. Airways and Airbus volunteers and the museum's staff in January of 2012 that was reattaching a wing. Reattaching the wing. And... Beverly Waters posted on the page, that's my wing. That's my wing. See? That's the wing. That, that's what saved me. That's my wing. I read words like this. I think of Paul's words, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think of words like Isaac Watts when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. I think about a, a world that, that scorns that cross and I tell you, I love that old cross. Where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. And I hope tonight you'll come to understand that that cross, the cross of Christ, is a passport to heaven. If only you will trust the Savior who for your sins went to that cross and died. Shall we pray? Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus, we bow to thank thee for thy word and to thank thee for our Lord Jesus. We cannot imagine a more horrific way to die than on a cross. The pain, the suffering is beyond our ability to grasp and yet we think that even beyond that was the fact that he suffered for our sins, the just for the unjust, that on him almighty vengeance fell, enough to sink the world to hell. We thank thee for him and ask, Lord, that if any in this gathering this evening do not know Christ as personal Savior, that they will trust him, that in the simplicity of a sinner taking Christ as Savior, they will simply trust him tonight and go home saved by Christ and by his cross. Grant safety as we go to our homes. Grant thy blessing on the hymn sing to follow and the meetings tomorrow if our Lord Jesus has not come as we give thanks in his worthy name. Amen.